That makes sense. So don't we think that Paradiso is the most cinematic of all of Dante? No. We don't? <laughs> it's a lot harder to envision. Well, is it? What do people think? What about what? About par- Paradiso. Uh, I think Say that again. A lot of singing. He's blind. He can't understand. She's so beautiful. It's hard stuff. Like it's just like that, and a lot of theology. <laughs> Geo- uh, lo- and a lot of non-Euclidean geometry. What do you mean? As in the the structure of heaven that he describes is blatantly non-Euclidean. In what sense? In the sense that, okay. I mean, that would be Einstein, but why Dante? Well, wait, like, like, wait a minute. Looking for that map thing at the beginning. Here. So, everything's basically orbiting Earth. But at the same time, I, I, near the end, he's describing how everything's orbiting the Empyrean in the same way, only in reverse. So the crystalline sphere is, like, concentric and starry sphere in Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Sun, yeah. Venus, Mercury, Moon, Earth. Yeah. Well, they tried, like, you just tried to reconcile a lot of the contributions, but I didn't follow her very well. Well, yeah, I, I, I actually um, read that um, one, one of the, um, some physicists or mathematicians or whatever have theorized that this was like an early vision of a three-sphere, which I don't know what it is, but <laughs> any math students here? No. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I think... <coughs> yeah, anyhow, go on. Um, why is this non-Euclidean? Well, what it is, is it's Ptolemaic. That is the, the idea of astronomy. It's pre-Copernican. So everyone knows about this? Mm-hmm. Like, no. Yeah, yeah. This is, okay, do you know about the two cultures that, that C.P. Snow famously described, how humanities and sciences kind of started diverging um, at the beginning of the 20th century? And how... Um, well, what he the way the way humanists always remember it is we don't understand science, but they don't understand humanities. What C.P. Snow actually said is it's really terrible because scientists understand humanities, but humanity humanities people are clueless about science, <laughs> um, and that's really bad. Um, so you really need to know a little bit of history of science. I gave I told you a little bit last time. Uh, you need to know that what's called the Copernican Revolution. This is not a phrase that's familiar to people. Come on. All right, Copernicus said he was the first... This is like the the most... I mean, I kind of hesitate to say it to you because it's so central a mistake in the history of culture, in intellectual history, that you need to know the mistake and then you need to know that it is a mistake. Um, Freud called his, um, his psychoanalytic doctrine a Copernican revolution in the study of the mind. Um, what the Copernican revolution is, is Copernicus was the, was the astronomer who first basically figured out that the earth goes around the sun, not that the sun goes around the earth. Um, that was an astonishing thing for people to, for, for, um, human beings to figure out that, um, what seemed obvious to people from the time when they realized that the Earth was round, which um, is around the 5th or 6th century BCE. Um, What seemed obvious to them was that the sun and the stars and so on were circling the Earth. The reason the sun rose in the east and set in the west, you all know that, right? Okay, good. The reason the sun rose in the east and set in the west 
was it was um, coming up, circling the Earth, going down in the west, <coughs> circling the other side of the Earth, which we Greeks and Italians and Europeans had never seen, um, and then rising again in the east. So people realized um, by the time of Socrates um, or Pythagoras um, that it was the same sun rising and setting every day, and where it was at night was circling around the Earth the other side. Um, they realized that when it was day here, it was night there, and it, when it was night here, it was day there. But just that way of putting it, which is the way we, we put it every day, that is, we think of the sun moving across the sky, um, that folk theory that the sun moves across the sky, we saw it in Ovid in the myth of the chariot, the chariot driven Phaeton. by Phaeton, good, who is the son of? Apollo, and whose story reappears in Dante's Divine Comedy. Good. In Dante's imagination. In Dante's time. In Dante's culture. In Dante's paradiso. Um, is, okay. Um, is, is the story of the motion of, um, of the celestial bodies. Um, so the, this is actually sufficiently interesting that I'm going to say a little bit about it just, just for pure interest's sake. Um, okay, so, so um, the way astronomy then worked, what astronomy was always about um, from the time that the Phoenicians were looking at stars was one of the amazing things that people realized is that they could predict the motion of heavenly bodies. Now, predicting the motion of heavenly bodies with the fixed stars, it's no problem. They're just there. Um, they're always pretty much where they are, um, depending on what time of year you are. You can tell what constellation is going to rise when. Again, this is something Dante talks about. Dante, as you know, is very interested in the stars. So you can tell, for example, do you know the phrase, the dog days of summer? Um, do you know why they're called the dog days? Serious? Yeah, say more. Serious, go on. Um, I don't know too much about it, but Sirius is greatest, or it's more central in the sky? No, it rises Rise. in August. So the constellation of Sirius you start seeing in August, so that's the worst part of the summer, is when the, the constellation of the dog rises. Um, so you can tell from the night sky what season it is. Um, this is an interesting fact. There's actually an iPhone app that will help you with this if you're too clueless to go out. Mm -hmm. Right. So you can tell just by looking at the night sky what season it is. You know, when you look at Japanese um, prints, one of the really interesting things about Japanese woodblock prints is, there, is that um, they tend to give you impossible seasons. That is, they give you flowers that bloom at different times, blooming at the same time. But there, there's another tradition of prints where you can tell exactly what week of the year it is by what flowers are blooming. Um, so, so you can look, there's visual evidence that has nothing to do with your experience of the totality around you, of where in the year you are. Um, for astronomy, the skies give you that evidence. Um, the only constellation which is visible in the northern hemisphere all year round um, are, the, are the dippers, the Great Bear, the Little Bear, the Great Dipper, and the Little Dipper. Um, the rest of the constellations will rise and set. Um, so those, so... From the start, astronomers could tell, um, could predict the motion of stars, could say in a month 
<coughs> Sirius is going to rise. <coughs> we know this because um, Orion has set, or something like that. Um, Dante talks about this, <coughs> where um, people say, right now the sun is between Aries and Gemini, which allows us readers to date the poem as Easter, because Dante tells you exactly what constellations are in the sky in the northern hemisphere at the beginning of Purgatorio. Um, where they are, where the sun is with respect to those constellations. Um, then, however, there were the planets whose motion was much harder to predict, the planets being Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Um, those are the planets that Dante knew about and that the Greeks knew about. Um, the planets were called wanderers. Um, they were distinguished from the fixed stars because they would move from constellation to constellation. And not only that, I mentioned this last time, but they would a planet might rise the way the moon rises, um, the way the fixed stars rises later every night. Um, that is, if you, um, um, if you look every day for when a constellation rises, what you will find is it rises um, about six minutes later every night. Um, so that in the course of 365 days, it's gone all the way around the Earth. Um, the planets would rise later every night, um, often um, 20 minutes later, half an hour later. The moon, you probably know, rises how much later every night? Mm -hmm. If the moon rises at 7 tonight, what time will it rise tomorrow? 17. No. 8. It's just over an hour later every night. No, just under an hour later every night, because 28 and a half days... Um, the moon does a complete circuit. So the moon rises, anytime the moon rises, you can predict that it's going to rise just under an hour later the next night. Um, so moon rise always is, is an hour later every night. Constellation rises are about six minutes later every night. Planets, they don't have a fixed time later every night. You go through, you go through um, tracks of time where they're, where they're rising, um, five minutes later, two minutes later, seven minutes later. I mean, some, some <coughs> um, particular number of minutes later. But then suddenly they start rising earlier. So they've been rising later and later and later, and now suddenly they're rising earlier and earlier. And then they start rising later and later again. Um, and so the astronomers thought, they are really weird, these planets. Um, and um, they just go wandering around the heavens. Um, so the great... Um, Greek astronomer Ptolemy um, came up with a system to describe the motion of planets. Um, Milton is going to talk about this too, because, because one of the major differences, um, one of the major boasts, eh, no, it's actually a minor boast, but one of the boasts, eh, it's a mid-level boast in Milton. One of the mid-level boasts in Milton, Milton went and met Galileo, who had confirmed um, that Copernicus was correct um, through using telescopes. He was the first great astronomer to use telescopes. Um, and he was um, pursued by the Inquisition for claiming that the Earth went around the sun, that the Earth moved. And he had to recant. Um, and in his old age, he did recant. Otherwise, he might have been burnt at the stake. He was under house arrest. He did recant, but his very famous recantation of his recantation, do you know what it is? But it does move. Yeah, nevertheless, it moves. So he agreed to sign statements saying, you know, I was wrong, silly me, um, Stalin is great, and the Earth <laughs> is the center of the universe. 
Um, and then after he signed them, he said, nevertheless, it moves. Um, and um, so that famous statement of Galileo's was his devotion to truth over church doctrine. Um, it was only in the 20th century, only in the last, I think, 30 years or so, um, that the church apologized and said, yes, in fact, um, the earth does go around the sun. We were wrong. Didn't they do the same for Joan of Arc fairly recently? Yeah. Yeah, they've done, they've done a lot of apologizing, um, with good reason. Um, well, country of France. They made her patron saint of France. Yeah, um, and they made her saint. Yeah, they did make her saint. But they also, um, fairly recently, they also acknowledged our winning revo- uh, winning revolution, our winning evolution. Um, John Paul um, uh, accepted the truth of Darwinian evolution um, in uh, the last twenty years or so. Um, so, what um, Milton is interested in, he has, he has, as you'll see when you start reading Paradise Lost for Friday, um, is, although this, uh, you won't get to this part yet, um, but he has his angel Raphael making fun of the Ptolemaic vision of the universe, which is, as he says, with cycle and with epicycle scribbled or. So Ptolemy actually, the great Alexandrian astronomer Ptolemy, actually figured out a way to predict the motion of the planets, even with Earth at the center of the universe. Um, so the idea, which is false, it's always interesting to see, a fa- to see the history of false science. The idea which is false is that everything in the universe moves in a circle around the Earth. Um, and that circular motion, um, nevertheless, can somehow give rise to apparent motion which is not circular. Um, that is, that the planets can go back and forth, that um, you can see some of the stars or planets kind of um, going across the sky in less than half a year and then taking more than half a year to come back. Um, that the motion of the sun in the summer seems to go faster um, than the motion of the sun in the winter. All of this is somehow supposed to be reconcilable to circles. So what Ptolemy did was he came up with the idea that you could do it by nesting circles within each other. Is this familiar to people? I know some of you are taking astronomy, and this is false. This is not what you should say on your astronomy exam. Um, but, But the basic idea is, so here's the Earth. What Kepler figured out was what? Astronomy? Students? Ellipses. Yeah, Kepler figured out that planets and that, that bodies go around the sun in elliptical orbits, um, which was a totally freaky thing which Newton then explained. But um, before the idea, elliptical orbits um, uh, saved a lot of work and explained a whole lot. But what um, Ptolemy thought is okay, you have things circling. The Earth, so this is the Earth now, not the Sun, E for Earth, things circling the Earth. And um, so here's a planet, here's a planet, here's a planet, Mercury, Venus, um, the Sun circling the Earth, then past the Sun is Mars circling the Earth. Really, do not say this on any (laughs) except in a course like this. Okay, so these things are all circling the Earth, according to Ptolemy. Um, and 
Nevertheless, the motion did not seem to be a motion that was circular. So what Ptolemy figured out, quite rightly, his, his calculations are correct, his geometry is correct, is that if you said, okay, we won't put this planet as simply circling the Earth, but we'll put a point here, which, go, which circles the Earth, and we will have the planet orbiting this point, so that you have a planet orbiting a point which itself circles the Earth. Again, this led to, to um, Copernicus and other people being able to figure out that the moon circles the Earth as the Earth is circling the sun. That is, so you have a circle within a circle. And that explained a lot of planetary motion, but not quite all of it. So then what Ptolemy said is, okay, for some planets, what you have is a point circling the Earth, and then another circle circling that point, and then a planet circling this point that's circling this point that's circling the Earth. Now, Ptolemy figured out that with enough of these nested circles, circles circling points in a circle, circling another point in a circle, circling still another point, the whole shebang circling the Earth, he could give extraordinarily accurate predictions of the motion of all celestial bodies. That is, you could compose the motion of celestial bodies as circles circling points that were themselves circling other points that were themselves <laughs> circling the center of the Earth. That if you nested enough of these circles together, you could predict all the motion of heavenly bodies. And by predicting the motion of heavenly bodies, you have this amazing predictive power for the universe. The calculations became um, incredibly difficult. And one reason that people started trying to come up with a new theory was they just thought these calculations were, were way too difficult to do and way too hard to explain scientifically. That is, it's one thing, remember they didn't have the idea of gravity, but it's one thing to have something circling the Earth. That makes sense, and we can see it with the fixed stars. It's another thing to think, how does it know what point to circle when, that, when um, it's circling a point that's circling the Earth? And then how does it know what point to circle here and so on? How would it know if it's out here to circle this, which is circling this, which is circling that, when those points are in some way all abstract? So anyhow, Ptolemaic astronomy worked that way, and that was the astronomy that people calculated planetary motion for for over a millennium, um, to the extent that they calculated planetary motion. These things were partly important because of astrology. Astronomy comes out of astrology and the idea that the stars influence, um, that is, the way the world is at the moment you're born, will influence what happens to you. You are a part of the universe, no less than the, what is it, than the sea and the stars. You probably don't know what I'm talking about, which is good. Sorry? It's a quote. Yeah, it's a horrible quote. They used to have it all the time in the 70s. Um, you're supposed to feel really good about being a hippie. Um, so, Copernicus said, no, all these problems are solved if you make the sun the center of the universe rather than the earth. Um, of course, the sun is not the center of the universe, but that was a good enough approximation um, in, the, in the 15th century, um, a century and a half after Dante. Um, so if you make this, so, so our modern sense of the solar system, that's the Copernican revolution. And Galileo then um, 150 years after Copernicus 
um, a little over a century after Copernicus, using um, telescopes, um, the, tu the tubes, Milton will call them, um, using telescopes was able to figure out um, that Copernicus was right. Um, and that's what the church got down on him for um, and made him recant. Um, so Galileo has a famous book called The World System. Um, Wait, so they made Galileo recanted, but why didn't they make Copernicus recanted? Because he was dead. So they didn't notice at the time? No, they did, but no one really paid attention to him at first. What were you going to say? No, they were against him also, but Galileo was the one to come up. Copernicus had a theory. It was kind of interesting, but it was also sort of like string theory. People were not really paying attention to it um, because there was no you know, scientific Italian magazine at the time. Um, to, sorry? I guess he was lacking the prize? Yeah, I mean, he was, he was just some wacky theorist, but Galileo was world famous, or at least Europe famous, um, he was using these telescopes. He was discovering things that people never knew existed, sunspots and the moons of Jupiter. It was, I think it was Galileo who first saw the moons of Jupiter. Um, Jupiter has moons? What? Um, the rings of Saturn. I don't know, I'm not positive Galileo saw them, but um, Galileo was using his telescope to see things in the universe that no one had dreamt existed. Um, it's just amazing that these lights in the sky that looked like stars turned out to have features, um, turned out to have moons that were circling them. Um, there were astronomical bodies that no one knew about that were right there, and with a little lens grinding, you could see them. Um, so Galileo was, was spectacular, had made these unbelievable discoveries. Um, and he was the one who then said, that, the, that um, everything circled the sun. John Milton went and met him when he visited Italy um, in his 20s. Um, one of his great things, one of his great joys was meeting Galileo and talking to him um, when he was a young man and Galileo was an old man. Um, so Galileo, as I say, um, is mentioned in Paradise Lost um, as uh, seeing sunspots, and the sunspots that he sees are compared um, in size to um, the shadow that Satan casts in Paradise Lost. Um, so if Don, so one of, I mean, another way to see what how Milton is essentially saying, Dante kind of got it right, but he's also kind of medieval and Catholic and didn't really understand the truth. The real truth is that we do go around the sun, that Galileo, whom Dante didn't know about, saw this, and that the really interesting thing are not shadows in the moon, but shadows in the sun, sunspots, which Dante didn't know about. Um, so um, part of what Milton is saying is he's giving um, an up-to-date account of the universe, um, which Adam is actually going to ask about in Paradise Lost. He's going to say, so God created all this, and it seems kind of wasteful of God. <coughs> Um, kind of, kind of, completely profligate of him to have all these millions of stars go racing around the Earth every twenty-four hours. Mm -hmm. um, like that's not a good lesson for us here in Paradise when we're supposed to be wise and prudent. Why is he just tossing these stars around us at this incredible speed? It's a real waste of energy. Um, here we have we've hit a point of peak virtue. Yeah, this joke isn't going to work. <laughs> the peak oil of Paradise. Um, I knew it wouldn't work. We've hit a point of peak virtue, um, and what God is showing us is wastefulness, um, squandering energy um, at unbelievable rates. 
And Raphael, the angel who's talking to him, then says, don't think you understand it all. Um, it's uh, just understand what you're supposed to understand. Um, it's true that your descendants may spend a whole lot of time trying to figure this out. And it really may take until about the time of John Milton before they do. Um, but you shouldn't worry about it. Um, he doesn't quite put it that way, but that's essentially what he's saying. Um, so d back to Dante then. So what Dante, it's not non-Euclidean, then it's not Copernican. What Dante does is he puts the earth at the center of things and Satan at the center of the earth. Now the false history that you will be told is that, um, but this is standard in Western culture, so it's a really important piece of false history um, because it is the agreed history of, of Western intellectual history. It's what later people like Freud believed was that the church was upset because Galileo and Copernicus suddenly proved that we were not the center of the universe, that the earth and God's creation was not the center of all things. And um, if we weren't the center of things, then we were less important than, um, uh, than the Bible says we are. We, we become more natural objects in the world. Um, and by being natural objects, we're amenable to scientific um, discovery of our origins, of um, ways that we're um, badly designed, which you all know we are, right? Um, scientific American, not scientific Italian, about 10 or 15 years ago, had a how humans would be designed um, if we could start over, um, sort of like a Y2K thing. Um, you know, what if you didn't have all these, all these features of human evolution that cause us to be designed as badly as we were? Um, because you can't, you can't just throw out the, the um, framework. Um, and among things is that our knees would go the other way. Um, so they actually had this amazing picture of what a well-designed human being would look like. Um, knees would flex backwards rather than forwards, and our knees would be under a whole lot less stress, and our backs would be under a whole lot less stress. Um, various things would be very different if we were intelligently designed instead of designed by evolution. Um, however, um, it turns out we're natural <coughs> objects with all the, um, all the problems and all the jury-rigged solution to those problems. Um, that any natural object is going to display. Um, that's why Darwin and Freud, why Freud thought Darwin had done a Copernican revolution in biology by coming up with the theory of evolution, and why he thought he was coming up with a Copernican um, revolution in psychology when he basically said the human mind is actually totally messed up. The human mind is not a really harmonious and beautiful thing that some people are... are sinfully um, uh, um, corrupt in one way or another, but the fact is that the human mind is designed to do a bunch of things that it can't do well simultaneously. Um, you can't simultaneously um, get along with others and compete to reproduce. Um, and therefore, the only way to solve this tension 
is to um, go into a strange um, state of mental collapse where part of your mind gets disavowed and sometimes it comes back and sometimes you push back against it and sometimes it pushes back against you and it's not actually that well designed. Um, it's explicitly not well designed for civilized life. So that one of Freud's last books very famously, not, a, not one of his best books, but it's um, an easy to read book and therefore is frequently the first thing by Freud that anyone reads is a book called Civilization and Its Discontents. And the idea in Civilization and Its Discontents is we, we are forest creatures who will fight each other for sex. Um, and now we have to live in cities and um, get on trams and... I, I have no idea why you were looking at each other, but I'm not going to ask. <laughs> um, and get on trams and um, pretend that we're not scoping each other out. Um, and that's all really doesn't work very well. So Freud thought, along with everyone else, that the reason the church was against Copernicus is that we were unseated as the center of the universe. Now, if you go back to Dante, though, you can see that what is the center of the universe, according to Dante? The very center. Hell and the very center of hell? Satan. So um, that doesn't go with the idea that it's a good thing to be the center of the universe. Satan is at the center because the center is as far as you can go from the Empyrean. There is no place more distant. It is equidistant from the Empyrean which is the shell of the universe, which is the largest, all-encompassing embrace of the universe. And the farthest you can be from that, um, it's like going to Missouri and getting as far as you can from the East Coast or the West Coast. The farthest you can be, are any of you from Missouri? I've never actually been, so um, I'm not dissing it. Um, I'm just not dissing it. But it's as far as you can be from any interesting part of the U.S. is... Actually, eastern New Mexico is. But anyhow, um, it's basically as far as you can be. That's where Satan is. Satan is at the center of the universe. So in church doctrine, it's not the case that we're upset that human beings are being demoted from their divine birthright when we hear that the earth goes around the sun. What the church was upset by was the idea that we might actually be in the sky. That we might be in the sky as much as the spheres. That the earth is in a sphere of its own. It's not that the spheres surround us at an inaccessible height. It's that we might be in a sphere ourselves. That like Mercury and Venus and Mars and Jupiter and Saturn, and it turns out unlike the sun, we might live in the heavens. That the definition of the heavens in Copernicus is everything that goes around the sun. That we really are. That the earth is a star. That's what the church didn't want. The idea that this fallen world might actually be a star as Venus and Mars are stars. That's what they were against. It put us too high. We who ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge. We who reproduced through sex. We who corrupted ourselves in all the disgusting ways we corrupted ourselves. We were among the stars? No way. 
was the church's reaction. Yeah. So okay, so you, you said um, basically the Empyrean was the shelf. So what I was talking about earlier about the geometry being confusing is there's a passage near the end where Beatrice is describing everything, everything being concentric. Um, uh, I'll try. But basically what she, what she says is that or contrary to what he saw previously, like, and she's pointing this out to him, everything, he, he now, it now seems like everything is orbiting around the Empyrean. Okay, um, find it. Yeah. Oh. Do, 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 do. Yeah. Slightly related to that is, so all the souls are in the Empyrean. Okay, so that there, I'm not so sure. That's something that a lot of commentators will tell you. Okay. And um, I think it's a little bit that they want that to be true. Okay. Um, and I actually have ideas about that. And I, I shouldn't have ideas because, because the commentators have been working on this for um, 600 years or 700 years. On the other hand, the fact that they've been working on it for 700 years means that maybe no one is quite happy with the solution they came. But keep asking. Okay. Because, wait, wait, wait. Because it seems... Beatrice was saying, so they all live in the Imperium in the of God, Imperium, but, but they're they show just showing up, up here to planets. make it look interesting yeah. for Dante. Right. Because they're, like, associated with the yeah. planets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You like that idea. So, I think it makes Dante a little bit less special, because I really don't understand why he was singled out, but um, I think it's a little bit egotistical. But I think that's, like, the idea that if you can't understand God's ultimate design, this is a way they have to show it to him that makes sense to him. Yeah. Um, so, basically, I think, ultimately, maybe what you could say is it may not make that much of a difference. What does make a difference, and the really, um, in a way, maybe the most morally difficult, not impossible, I'm not saying morally difficult in order to say, so it just just doesn't work morally, but the, the lesson that Dante knows it's hardest to teach is why there should be um, uh, degrees of blessedness in paradise. That is, why um, are the inconstant, for example, those who break their vows, even if they're forced to break their vows, why do they, through no fault of their own, find themselves at, at the level of the moon rather than as part of the eagle, let's say? Um, why does that happen? And um, he gives an explanation for it. It's not that the explanation um, doesn't have very deep philosophical power. It does. Um, But it requires an explanation of some deep philosophical power and one that you may or may not accept. I think in some sense um, it's probably more or less the way we actually think about things and we could accept it with sufficient thought. But um, the... But then the question is, okay, so when you meet um, figures in the circle of the moon, um, if they're really part of the Empyrean, does it matter that they're in the moon and not um, in Jupiter or Saturn um, or among the angels? And if you accept that, that they're projections from the Empyrean, you can still think of that projection as being like a movie projection. That is, they're there but they're not the part of the Empyrean that is um, uh, the most um, illuminated part. Um, so you still have to have variety. Somewhere there, have, there, there are degrees of blessedness. And Dante, or the commentators who say everyone's in the Empyrean, 
want to say that the way to think about this is the degrees of blessedness aren't that you're in one sphere or another sphere or another sphere. Everyone's in the Empyrean. Um, but nevertheless, even in the Empyrean, there are degrees of blessedness. Um, and then they get projected down to the various spheres where Dante meets them. Um, the other possibility is, no, they're just in the <coughs> spheres in heaven where Dante meets them. Um, and um, in some sense, the projection is of the Empyrean onto them. Um, but in either case, if you think of it in terms of light, which is how Dante wants you to think of it, if you think of it in terms of light, some are brighter than others. And it may be that that variety of brightness is up in the Empyrean, and their brightness is part of the great kaleidoscopic harmony of the Empyrean, or it may be that it's um, that how bright they are is determined by how far away they are in the Empyrean. That is, they can be distributed either concentrically in the Empyrean or vertically towards the moon. Um, and ultimately, I don't think it makes a difference. Um, but I think those who want to see them all in the Empyrean, it, it, it registers a troubled sense of degrees of difference of blessedness. And that's what, what the commentators are troubled by, partly because it is troubling. And Dante wants it to be troubling, but there are degrees of blessedness. Um, but he's facing head-on the most difficult problems of theology. You know, the most difficult problem of theology, as everyone knows, is why is there evil? If God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, which are the three features of God, you can explain evil if you, if you only give him two out of three. You can say, well, there are three features, and God has two of them, omnipotence and omnipresence, omnipotence and omniscience, omnipresence and omniscience. Two out of, any two out of those three, evil gets explained. But all three, it's much harder to explain evil. If he knows it all, if he can do it all, and if he's everywhere so he can do it all anywhere that he is, then there shouldn't be evil. So the great problem in a monotheistic theology, it's not a problem if you don't believe in monotheism. It's easily, I mean, the Iliad and the Odyssey easily explain evil away. The gods get angry at each other. Some of the gods are evil themselves. They're evil gods and good gods. They're different gods. They have different, they have different interests. They go against each other. There's conflict and so on. Easily explained. Um, that conflict, Milton will be explicit about this, but Dante's already, already explicit about this. That conflict in Christian theology becomes a conflict between God and the devil. That is, between God and Satan. Um, so there's still conflict, and the rebel angels are like the gods who go against Zeus or Jupiter or Jove. Um, and so you still get this kind of polytheistic conflict, but how do you, make, how do you reconcile that with monotheism? Um, well, it has to turn out that the rebel angels don't actually have any power. They just believe themselves to have power. Um, but, so why do they do evil if they have no power? What is it that enables them to do evil? That is the great question of theodicy. Um, and so, again, the standard-ish answer is, does anyone know? Why, anyone know why there's evil? Free will. Free will. Exactly, see? The standard-ish answer is free will is itself an absolute good. Dante will say this. Um, the idea of free will, the idea of the will is invented by Augustine, who appears, of course, in Paradise. But free will is a good. Um, as Milton will say, without free will, 
then the only thing that would happen is what what needs must happen, not what they will. Without free will, you don't have love, is what Milton will say. Dante doesn't quite say that, but he comes close to it. Without free, well, he does say it. That is that that um, evil is the perversion of the will to love. But without free will, you can't have love, because without free will, all you have is mechanics. Stuff happens because it happens. But free will is itself a good better than not having sin. It's important without free will, without um, sin as a bad choice of the free will, you couldn't have free will. So free will is itself something better than not having sin at all. This is a, a standard anti-totalitarian argument. Um, it's, it's the argument you could say that Orwell makes in 1984. It's the argument that Second Amendment and First Amendment um, cultists um, argue that people should have guns because guns don't kill people, people kill people. Um, and the nanny state doesn't give us free will, and that's really bad, but we Tea Partiers, we think that freedom trumps having a completely nonviolent, completely conformist, completely oppressive society. First Amendment people say the same thing. We think free will trumps um, making sure that everyone just says the pious things um, and, and, um, and making sure that everyone licks the jackboots of authority. Um, so that idea is a theological idea, um, and the idea is, yeah, free will is why there's evil. So, so, the, so you have an omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God who permits evil as part of his goodness. Part of his goodness is to permit evil to occur. So that is one of the things that Dante is explaining, and what that means is that there are a variety of fates in the universe. And even in heaven, even though God is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipotent and omnipresent, we are not all equally part of God. You would think, well, okay, so this, is, this also goes, I can't believe we're going through this whirlwind tour of theology, but it's interesting. Um, the Gnostic view of God. So, okay, one of the things, Augustine started out as a Manichaean. So, do people know what Manichaeanism is? Yep. Explain. Uh, Manichaean in the colloquial sense. <clears throat> is someone who starkly divides the world into good and evil. Yeah. And I guess in the theological sense, it's the idea that there is like a titanic struggle between the forces of good and the forces of evil, and there's no real middle side. Yeah. So they're essentially, in Manichaeanism, there are two, there are two gods, a principle of good and a principle of evil. Um, it's what the dark, it's what Susan Cooper writes out of, it's in, in recent popular culture, it's what Star Wars is about. The dark side of the force and the force being with you. Those are Manichaean, Manichaean um, visions of the universe. Um, so in Manichaeanism, there are two equally powerful gods. This is troubling, or maybe not quite equally powerful, but close to it. This is very troubling if you want, if you're a monotheist. Um, so what Gnosticism came up with the idea, which is a very important one, and it's in, it's, um, in the Kabbalah, is that it's a little bit different in the Kabbalah, and you're too young to know about it. Um, but the Gnostic idea is that God fills the universe, but what creation was is God withdrawing himself 
from a little bit of the universe or withdrawing himself a little bit to give space to otherness. And that otherness is us and matter and the world of matter. Um, so, so, again, the question, it's all, you should always reverse engineer to say what question is Christian or Jewish or Muslim doctrine seeking to answer? When you're taught the doctrine, you're not taught the questions that this doctrine is supposed to um, get rid of. But if you ask why this doctrine, you can reverse engineer to see what question led to this doctrine. So the question that leads to the doctrine of Gnosticism, of Manichaeanism, of free will, that question is if God is triple omni, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, um, how come we're not just parts of God? Why aren't we God if God is everywhere and is everything um, and if there's nothing but what God um, wishes and wills and so on? Why aren't we God? Um, and the fact that that's a question that seems to need answering means that first of all the assumption is we're not God which seems reasonable enough about you all <laughs> is that we're not God so, so then the question is well why not and then the answer is because God has permitted a variety within himself this is the question that really haunts Augustine. Augustine says, look, if God is everywhere and I have this little box that I'm holding, does that mean I just have this two cubic inches of God in my hand? <laughs> Do I have a little bit of God in my pocket? And is there more God in my book bag? Just look, I'm carting God around. Not a lot of God. Just two or three cubic feet of God. But still... It's God, right here. <laughs> Look, a bunch of God. And this freaks him out. He can't stand that idea. Um, but you can see where, you know, where those, those are, um, <coughs> you could think they're stoned ideas, but stoned ideas are deep ideas. Stoned questions are deep questions. Um, Dude. Yeah, it's, it's the big Dantowski. Um, and that so so Dante is asking that question, and and Dante's answer is, dude. Even in paradise, things aren't distributed equally. So whether they're not distributed equally on the level of the Imperium or or among the spheres, um, in a way, is a secondary question. What really matters is they're not distributed equally. Emily and then Simon. Emily. No, um, but there's. It's also one of those things where um, there's ideas are translatable into each other, um, and uh, in a way, this has to be true. You could only think. You could never understand what anyone else was ever saying or what any other point of view of the universe ever was unless there was a possibility of translating from one to the other. Um, this, is a this is an interesting philosophical um, uh, argument. Um, but uh, I guess this is our whirlwind tour of everything today. Um, the thing about Ptolemy, the cycles and epicycles, or is that 
Um, you could argue that Ptolemy is right. Um, in fact, Einstein showed that you could argue that Ptolemy is right. That is, that the Earth doesn't go around the Sun, but the Sun goes around the Earth. Why? Because there is no fixed point. It's not that the Sun is still or the fixed stars are still. There is no, there's no such thing as, a fixed, as fixed space in the universe. So you could say <coughs> that the Earth is still, and all these things are moving around the Earth in these incredibly complicated ways, um, and there's nothing in principle to tell you that that's a false description, whereas our going around the sun is a true description. Um, they're the same thing. If you're in a subway and there's another subway going past you, um, what you could say is that subway is, is going faster than you down one direction, but you could also conceive velocity differently so that you could say you're actually going backwards along the subway that's going past you, very slowly backwards, heading towards the end of that subway. And both of those are true. It's just one is much easier for the mind to grasp than the other. And so we tend to say what's true is the one that's easiest for the mind to grasp. So to, to use Quine's famous example, um, you go meet some people whose language you don't know and a rabbit shows up, and someone looks at it and says, um, Gobby Guy. Do people know about this? No. Um, I thought someone here was a philosophy major. Are there more than one? Who's a philosophy major? Anyhow, so, so they say, Gobby Guy, and you say, oh, I know, that means rabbit. <laughs> um, but it may be, Quine says, that what they're actually saying is undetached rabbit part. Look! <laughs> A rabbit, a, an undetached rabbit ear. Um, and you wouldn't know, because they would say undetached rabbit part every time you said rabbit. And you would say rabbit every time they notice an undetached rabbit part, you would say rabbit. Um, and there's, how could you find out whether they were saying undetached rabbit part? Or they might actually be using a verb where you were using a noun. That is, you might say rabbit, noun, and they might have a word in their language or a sentence in their language, kind of like our sentence, it's raining, where um, some other people might think that, you know, we say, it's raining, and they would think that's a single word which means rain. So they may be saying, it's rabbiting. <laughs> which is also think a verb. Saying, yeah, rabbiteth, as Quine says, rabbiteth. Um, whereas you're saying, rabbit! Um, and you would never know. And the point, Quine's point is it doesn't matter that you would never know. Because as long as you said the same things in the same circumstances, one is translatable into the other. Um, so the question is Gnosticism, is Dante a Gnostic? The, the intellectual history answer to that is absolutely not. Um, clearly, deeply, certainly not. But another answer might be, yes, what he's doing is explaining the absence of God from some parts of the universe. And that explanation of the absence and of the, um, of the differential presence of God leading low even unto his absence, so that at the center of the universe what you cannot say is, Godeth. It does not God here. Um, it's not Godding where we are here at the center of the universe. Um, 
it's possible to translate that into Gnostic ideas. Or to put it another way, what the Gnostics did was they translated um, biblical ideas into their own terminology, which is the terminology of presence and absence. Um, so really it becomes a difference in degree. Um, the difference in degree, again, between undetached rabbit part and rabbit is that if you order a rabbit for dinner, which um, I wouldn't as a vegetarian, um, and which many of you wouldn't if you're kosher, but if you order a rabbit for dinner, um, and you were brought an undetached rabbit part, you might nevertheless be concentrating a little bit differently on what you were eating than what the chef wanted you to eat. Um, you know, that is, look, I brought you an undetached rabbit part. Hey, wait, why are you eating the rib meat? That wasn't the undetached part that I wanted you to eat. Okay, this is getting wild. Yeah. <laughs> uh, two things. First of all, I point out as an aside like that, a little bit interesting again, just the idea of ostensible learning or whatever that may be. But yeah. um, also just. Um, yeah, if you want to know more about this, take the Wittgenstein class in the spring. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, um, but also just uh, about Rabbitith and, and, and Godding, uh, the Russian language, and maybe we did discuss this before. You can do that. Uh, you do do that. You 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 can take any. You can do it nouns as well, though it's done more poetically than it is. You can verb any noun. You can verb any noun yeah. or any adjective as well. Yeah, but it's not. Yeah. It's just the root. Like from the root, you can make the verb. No, but the root is the root of every word, noun, verb, whatever. It's not that you can use the morph it. Yeah. Yeah. We do, that, we do that a little bit in English. Impact is not a verb, but you all use it as a, as a verb. Access. Um, sorry? Shift. Shift, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's a, um, we'll have to see how this impacts on your record. Um, if you don't shiver when you hear that sentence, it's because you're corrupt. Um, <laughs> but um, I don't shiver when I hear contact as a verb. That is, I'll, con I'll contact you tomorrow. Um, but my mother, who's not, whose English is her fourth language, I think, God, does she hate that, um, using contact as a verb. Um, so it happens, it happens in the history of language, too. Um, but please don't use impact as a verb. Please don't. Also, since I read your papers, um, manifest always takes a direct object. Things don't manifest. They manifest themselves. That's another thing you should know. Just, just, just so you should know. Um, also, something is not cliché, since we're since I'm going through pet peeves, it's cliché, duh, there's a D at the end. You don't say, oh, that's so cliché. In the original In, the original in sense French, of, yeah, yeah in English, you put a D at the end. But that doesn't... Yeah, tough. Ah. Tough. Can you, can you say something is a cliché? Yes, is a cliché. Oh, okay. But yeah, that's a cliché... That's that, that, that's like saying like. Sorry. That, that's like saying. It's a past participle. Nevertheless, in English, you put a d at the end. That's like saying tired. <laughs> yeah, but it's not because it's a foreign word. Okay, what did you find us? Okay, where, where so are we? There are two par different pages. There, there are two parts I saw that really kind of broke yes, geometry we? as we really as we tend to see it. The first is um, Cantor twenty-eight, where where Beatrice is this um is. Describing the universe as Dante sees it, and, um, um, page, dur, there's no page number there, uh, 761, um, is where it starts. Um, line number? Um, oh, are you starting at the start? Uh, starting around line 18, going to, hmm, 
I want to say 48 or 69. Okay. So the star that's seen from here below, is yeah. that what you're talking uh, okay. about? Okay, yeah, the star that's seen from here below seems smallest when, we, or when seem a moon you've put beside it as when, one, as when one star is set beside another, as near perhaps as a halo seems to be when it encircles the light that colors it where the vapor that forms is most dense. There whirled about that point a ring of fire, so quick it would have, uh, would have easily outsped the swiftest sphere encircling the universe. <coughs> Pardon me. Uh, this ring was encircled by another ring, and that by the third, the third by the fourth, the fourth by the fifth, and the fifth by the sixth. Higher there followed the seventh, now spread so wide that the messenger of Juno in full circle would be unable to contain its size. And so Who's the messenger of Juno, by the way? Iris. Iris, Iris. So the full rainbow couldn't contain its size. Go on. Uh, and so too, the ninth, the eighth, and ninth, each one revolving with diminished speed the farther it was wheeling from the first. Whoa, each one revolving with diminished speed is what you have? Yeah. So yeah. They, they revised it. No wonder the page numbers are different. Okay, I have each one revolving more and more slowly. Diminished speed. Okay. Diminished and, that one are, and that one least removed from the blazing point of light possessed the clearest flame because I think, <coughs> pardon me, it was the one that, it, uh, that is the most, e- most in truth by it. My lady who saw me in grave doubt, yet eager to know and comprehend, said, From that point, depend the heavens and all nature. Observe that circle nearest it, and understand its motion is so swift because it's spurred on by flaming love. And I to her, if the universe were arranged in the order I see uh, here among the wheels, I would be content uh, with what you'd seen before me. However, in the world of sense, we see the farther from the center they revolve, the more divinities in their orbits. Um, so that, that's the part where it's like the heavenly view versus the earthly view. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, if my desire to know or to know shall gain its end in this rare temple of the angels, which has but light and love for boundaries, then I still need to learn exactly why the model in its copy failed to follow the same plan. For using my own powers, I reflect on this in vain, that um, that your fingers are not fit to undo this knot is not. Er, sorry, this is Beatrice. That your fingers are not fit to undo this knot is not surprising. So entangled has it become, or er, from never tried. My lady said this, then went on. Take what I uh, I shall tell you if you would be fed. And see you sharpen your wits on it. The material heavens are wide or narrow, according to power, greater or less, is diffused through all their parts. Greater goodness makes for greater blessedness, and greater blessedness takes on greater body, when all its parts are equal in perfection. Yeah. Okay, so, and, and then, um, ba- basically, this 78. Uh, you will see a marvelous congruence, larger with more, smaller with less, in each sphere, according to its celestial intelligence. Mm-hmm. So, what, what I took from this is that they're, like, simultaneously... Everything's orbiting around the Earth, but in the same way, everything's orbiting around the Empyrean in the exact opposite order. Well, no, it's that the Empyrean is sweeping everything around the Earth. Hmm. So that it's not that um, it... So, mo- okay, first of all, motion is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Because motion, this is what we were talking about on, um, on Friday. Um, motion is the... Um, is is the sign of love that is it's mm-hmm. always going it's it's always vectored towards so love is a vectoring towards um stillness is death motion and that's why satan is still motion is a good thing um so so that's the first thing to know then what dante is essentially saying is that the absolute motion um is the motion of the imperium which sweeps all the other spheres with it um, so it's it's that motion which is motion itself. Again, there's a long history and a long puzzle to the theory of motion. Um, what motion is is a question that goes back to Zeno. Uh, we talked a little bit about Zeno's paradoxes, and it's it's one of the things that Aristotle tried to talk about as a primary um, um, abstraction 
that there is such a thing as motion. Um, that <coughs> motion, motion has the same status as matter as a primary thing um, in the universe. So the history of motion, it's, I mean, I always find it interesting to, to look at things that we're very familiar with because they're part of our vocabulary and we've been taught about them since kindergarten and to see how weird they were when people were first thinking about them, how weird they thought they were. Motion is one of the things that people thought were really, really weird. As soon as you start thinking about motion, it seems like a weird thing. Um, it does to Dante. But motion for Dante um, is really, really important because it's the sign of love. That's why one of the last words of Divine Comedy is, is move, is the word move. Um, so... And when Galileo says the world moves, that again gives it too much status. Motion is good. Now it's true God is, is traditionally the unmoved mover, but what matters is that he moves, and the thing he moves most is the Empyrean. So the Empyrean is swirling around with this absolute motion that is pulling other things in its wake. And the motion of all things in the universe is, is caused by the wake of this absolute motion of the Empyrean. Um, and the thing that isn't pulled along in its wake is Satan. That's the one thing that doesn't move. Satan at the center of the universe. So you have a kind of um, degree or degradation of motion from the Empyrean to the center. Um, does that help, or is that... Wait a minute. But it says that the ones closer to the center spin faster. Yeah, where, remind me what line that is. Um, uh, they're, they're, around, world, um, they're whirled around that point to ring of fire so quickly. Wait, what, line, 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 line. Line? 27 around that point. And um, he's basically saying the ones, are, ones closer to the center spin faster. Yeah. What? <laughs> What, okay, the thing to do is to see what the what the rever what he's reversing here. So, essentially, what he's saying is, if we look at the at the spheres, um, we seem to be moving and they seem to be still. The Earth seems to be rotating or revolving um, on its axis now. Um, but in fact, it's the spheres that are moving. Um, it's. Uh, um, Actually, I'm not perfectly confident that this is what he's thinking. Um, but that he's certainly thinking this much, that the farther you go, that the way things appear on Earth, the sun and the moon seem to be the celestial bodies that move most. Mm -hmm. And the fixed stars beyond them, first the planets and then the fixed stars, and beyond that the supposed Empyrean seems, <coughs> seems to move least. So if the spheres are turning around us, which is what he thinks, it looks like the closer the celestial body, the more motion there is in it. Um, and in fact, and this is true, the farther away the celestial bodies are, the faster they're moving with respect to us. That is, um, you've all heard you know, that the Earth is moving around the sun, the Earth is, is revolving at the equator at about 1,000 miles an hour, and it's moving around the sun at about 60,000 miles an hour, and the sun is actually moving through the Milky Way at several million miles an hour, so that the larger the scale that you're looking at, um, the um, faster the motion that you have to dis 
used to describe um, the relation of that thing to to the large scale. So we're moving. So the Earth is actually moving with respect to the fixed stars. We're moving at millions of miles an hour. Um, with respect to the Sun, we're moving at sixty thousand miles an hour. With respect to the Moon, we're moving at about a thousand miles an hour. Um, and um, so the farther the astronomical thing we're looking at, the faster we're moving with respect to it, although it looks like we're not moving quickly with respect to it. It looks like we're moving slowly with respect to it. Um, so Dante is saying something similar. That is that the real, that motion increases as you get closer to God. It's again, we would say now it's like falling into a black hole. Um, that is the closer you get to the, to the um, quote, surface, unquote, of black hole, the faster you'll go, um, the greater the acceleration you'll be subject to. Um, but it doesn't look that way because these things are so far away. Um, but as you get close, you can see that in each sphere, the motion is um, carrying along faster and faster, but you can only see it when you, as you get close. So I think that's the basic thing that he's saying here. Um, you can probably get and read the notes carefully um, to, to go farther than that. But the basic thing is, on Earth, it doesn't look like the fixed stars are moving very fast, but as you get close to them, you see they're actually moving a lot faster than the moon is. Um, it doesn't look that way, but they are. Um, so it's a question of perspective. Does that make any sense? You're looking skeptical. It, it, I guess it makes sense. Just trying to not think in geometric terms anymore for that purpose. Well, it, it's, I think that the, that the laws of motion, he, or the motion he's describing here, it does make sense. It's just that it's, it's a question of perspective and difference. Okay. Um, you know, what he's thinking is, you know, it's just the equivalent of, of um, walking down um, a road at night when you can see the moon and you can see trees. And, and you know, it, it's what animation has to do. What's closer to you, the planes that are closer to you, there's more apparent motion than the planes that are farther away from you. Um, but you know that the moon has got, goes all the way around the Earth every month, whereas the trees aren't really moving. Um, or you know that if you walk all day, the trees above your head seem to move and the sun doesn't. But at the end of the day, the sun has gone all around the Earth, whereas you're just 20 miles away from the trees. Um, so it's a well-known illusion that what's closer to you shows more apparent motion than what's farther away from you. It's one of the ways that we perceive depth when we're moving, um, is, is what's farther away seems not to move. Um, Dante knew that illusion. And what Beatrice is explaining here um, is that that illusion works in astronomy also. It works with the different, the different orbits of the different planets and stars. Okay, so we should start talking about Paradiso now. <laughs> well, in a way we did. All right, um, uh, so just a few things. Um, first of all, um, Paradiso both does and doesn't conform to the seven sins plus two um, model that we were looking at in um, both Inferno and Purgatorio. Remember that there's the... That there's the um, um, very interesting correspondence between the going deeper and deeper into hell and going more and more towards sins of treachery and betrayal so that the least bad sin is lust and the worst sin 
is um, is betrayal of someone who trusts you. Um, and then in purgatory, we undo those sins more or less in the same order that they were increasing in hell, they decrease in purgatory. That is what's worst in hell is the first thing is pride in purgatory. And then you undo the sins one by one until the last sin to be undone in purgatory is love or lust or desire. Um, and we looked at that correspondence, the way they, the way they matched up. In Paradiso, there's a similar matchup, but it's not nearly as obvious. But um, one place to see that matchup is now, again, what we're going to do is go through the virtues that are the opposites of those sins. So again, think of the structure here. Inferno is whatever your sin was, that's what you have to live with forever. Purgatorio is whatever your sin is, the counter pain. It's still something bad, but the counter evil will um, undo the sin that you've committed. It's still an evil, but it's a counter evil. It's, um, this theory ultimately goes back to medical theory. That is, um, there's um, one theory, and Aristotle talks about this when he talks about catharsis, one, one medical theory is the way you cure things, this is now called, uh, well, Aristotle called it um, homeopathy. The way you cure anything is to give more of it. Um, so if someone is feeling sick and like they want to throw up because they've drunk too much, what do you do? You make them throw up. Um, so the very thing that's making them sick, you increase that sickness in order to purge whatever causes it. Um, if um, Then the other idea of medicine is you counter whatever is wrong with someone. So if someone wants to, if someone feels sick and um, is about to manifest that sickness in some kind of illness, what you might give them, for example, is an antihistamine so their nose stops running. Um, and that theory is there's something wrong with them and you give them something that ordinarily would be bad for you because it would dry you up and parch you. But if you're producing too much snot, then the anti-mucus medication will balance it out. So that's the medical theory. It goes all the way back to Aristotle and even before him. I mean, Aristotle's picking it up figuratively when he talks about tragedy and catharsis. Um, I guess we, I should say this to you also. It's all part of the Western canon. So Aristotle says that tragedy is about fear or pity. We talked about this. Um, that is that, you, that what tragedy induces in an audience is an experience of either pity or terror. And then it cures. His word is catharsis, which means purgation, which is a medical term. It cures the very experience it induces. How does it do it? If you feel pity, what it does is it gives you a happy ending with, so you no longer... And for Aristotle, tragedy can happen can have a happy ending, so that the pity, now you no longer need to fear it. If you feel, I mean, you no longer need to feel it, because the, the person you felt sorry for is now okay. And that's called an allopathic catharsis. That is catharsis, which takes the form of countering the sad feeling, the unhappy feeling that the tragedy is producing. The other thing you can do is push it beyond a limit. So you feel terror, and then things get pushed to the breaking point. And when they hit the breaking point, 
you stop feeling it anymore. You hit bottom. And then you feel like you've gotten it all out. All your human experience, all your, all your capacities for terror are exhausted. And that experience of exhaustion, that's kind of the King Lear experience, that then ends things. And that's a homeopathic catharsis. What you get in Inferno is homeopathy. People do stuff and they get more of it. What you get in Purgatorio is allopathy. People do stuff and they get the counter thing. Um, you're hungry and you get food, that's allopathic catharsis, or you're full and you have to um, purge yourself of that food, that's allopathic catharsis. Um, you have diarrhea and you take something which, um, which stops you from shitting, or you have constipation and you take something that causes you to shit. Each thing is, is um, counter-indicated for the other case. So what you always do is take something that counters what's wrong with you. That's the medical idea. Um, in paradise, what you get instead are not the counter vices or the counter evils, which is what you get in purgatory, but you get the counter goods to evil. So if love in um, Inferno leads you to the first circle, and in Purgatorio leads you to the last terrace before the earthly paradise. Love in paradise gets you to the planet Venus. Venus. So again, notice we have we have something like a gesture towards the same order where love is closest to the top of Purgatory. You get to Venus, and that kind of love is good love. Um, love. <coughs> which is itself a good, is now finally vectored towards the good. So I don't think they give you this chart, but I'll just tell you very briefly. The moon, I'll, don't take this down, but I'll tell it to you. The moon is the planet of inconstancy. Um, that's why those who don't keep vows are in the sphere of the moon. Mercury, astrologically, is the planet of the ambitious. Um, Venus is the planet of the lovers. The sun, because it lights everything up, is the planet or the star of wisdom. Mars is what? Anyone know? War. War. Um, and in this case, war on the behalf of right. So it's violence, but good violence. Um, Jupiter, king of the gods, is therefore... Starts with a J-U-2 in English. Justice. Justice. Um, Saturn is the planet of contemplation or thought. That's, again, an astrological idea. The Saturnine temperament is one which is contemplative. Um, and then we get to the three virtues which all come together. Um, so Dante doesn't say, okay, I'm going to give one to one planet, one to the next, and one to the third. But now we get the last three virtues. These are called theological virtues, which are both faith, hope, and charity. And they go with the fixed stars, faith, hope, and charity. Then we get the level of angels, which is the first motion, the prima mobile. And beyond that is the imperium, which is where God is. So that very briefly, they don't give you nearly the same chart at the beginning of this book as they do um, in Purgatorio and Inferno. Partly because at Paradiso is a little bit harder to chart, but that's basically the structure of Paradise. Okay, we'll talk a little bit more about it, but read, um, finish Paradiso and read, if you've already finished it, read the first two books of Paradise Lost. If you haven't, then finish it and read the first two books of Paradise Lost. <laughs>
Okay. Okay. Wait, we're doing Thanksgiving on a Tuesday this year? Who knew? Thanksgiving. Well, I'm only missing one day of class, and I can go home for a week. Okay. So I thought it was worth it. I'm missing one day of class. Okay. I talked to...